Good morning, church. It's good to be here uh, with you this morning. We are continuing in our scripture memorization, and we have one more week in Lamentations chapter 3, 22 to 23. And so next week we will try to take all of our visual aids and visual helps away and do it without that. And I think we may even practice this week, but maybe some of you have the bookmark still in your Bible, and that's okay. So let's say it together. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. Very good. And I, I still heard some thighs and that's okay. That's all right. We are in John chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, take them and Go ahead and turn to John chapter 10 a while, and we are on part two. If you notice in your weekly this week, uh, your note guide already has some of the notes filled in for you. And just so you know, that's if you missed last week, those are the notes that we put in last week as we were studying this passage. We will continue to unpack this exposition of the Good Shepherd this week and next week as well. Next week will be part three of this three-part series where Jesus is talking about the good shepherd. And you know, shepherds, sheep, these are terminologies, these are things that the people of the day would have been very, very familiar with. In fact, many of you can remember back to the account or an account of a young shepherd boy who was in Israel, who was protecting his flock from bears and from lions remember the account of David and I want you to imagine that for a second as a shepherd you're equipped with a shepherd's rod maybe a sling and you are called to defend against a bear and a lion it's a pretty crazy task if you think about it and I want you to flash forward in David's life and in David's leadership to a moment where David, as a young shepherd, is standing before a new flock, a flock that's in distress, a flock whose hearts were sinking because of the powerful beasts that have surrounded them. It was the army of the living God. And the army of the living God, they were in need of a shepherd. They were in need of a shepherd to deliver them from the jaws of the Philistines. And the same shepherd who had chased down bears, who had slain lions, that same shepherd would show that through the Lord, he would be up to the task. And as this shepherd boy approached the giant who stood opposing the Israelite forces, this giant spoke, and aren't his words incredibly ironic? Look at what he says, or hear what he says. This is what he said in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And I can't help, can't help but imagine or wonder if when 
David, this young shepherd warrior, heard this man say, am I a dog? In his mind, if he was like, well, I've slain bears and I've slain lions. What's a dog? And with a sling and a hardy stone, the rest is history. And this young shepherd boy would soon become a powerful shepherd king over his people. And though the Israelites were armed to the hilt with enough weapons and armor to defend themselves, they weren't a defenseless people. They had armor, they had weapons, they were scared. And in their hearts, they were scattered because their king Saul was not leading as a good shepherd. And David's example clearly illustrates for us that the true posture of a shepherd is of courage from the front line and laying down your life for the sake of others. Look at David's words, how brave and how bold he was as he opposed this giant before the flock of Israel. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all of his assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand this is courage friends from the front line this is an example of a shepherd laying down his life for the sake of others and claiming the victory that already belongs to the lord what a marvelous example of shepherd leadership and while this is a great example david's life and his leadership is not a perfect example but jesus's life and leadership was and he is continuing in his illustration of the good shepherd this week. And as we look at this illustration that he's using, this figure of speech that he talks about in verse 6, we are going to continue to unpack these five prevailing questions that you see in your note guides and further explore what Jesus meant by saying that he was both the door of the sheep and the good shepherd's. Take your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 10, verses 7 to 13. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, a thankful people. Thankful that your mercies are new every morning, and it's the, it's the truth of your steadfast love that holds us through difficult and trying seasons in life. And we gather around your word on Sunday morning because it is the word of life. And you've called us, Lord, as a people, called out to enter into this word together because we know that your Holy Spirit will work through this living, active, and powerful word. And so, Father, our prayer is that you would take the words on these pages and you would use them to motivate within us a desire to grow, a desire to grow in a greater love for you, and a greater love for those that you place in our pathways every single day of our lives. Help us to give you the glory 
and give you the honor. Change our hearts and our minds today, we pray. It's in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 10, verses 7 to 13. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. What does it mean to have abundant life? What does that look like? That's what Jesus is talking about here in this portion of John chapter 10. Was Judaism successful in giving the sheep of Israel an abundant life? I don't think so. It doesn't appear that way from what we see in the text of the Gospels. But let's not forget that Jesus begins this passage by defining the behaviors of the thieves. And the robbers. This is what the thieves and the robbers do. We also noted that the identity of these thieves and robbers was the religious leaders of the day. And if the sheepfold represented Judaism and its man-made tradition and legalistic facade of peace and security, then Jesus, as the good shepherd of his people, was coaxing his sheep to leave the sheepfold leave behind the laws and the tradition of men and to follow him a new command a better way the only way jesus truly truly i say to you i am the door of the sheep church it is safer to be found with jesus than judaism It is better to listen to the voice of the good shepherd than the voice of the pretenders who came before him. And there were many messianic pretenders. Verse 8, he says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And the Jewish people, they knew many who had come before Jesus. Many who were claiming to be prophets. Many who claimed to have the best interest of the people in mind only to lie to harm and to bring destruction to the flock there were many just like the prophet jeremiah said in chapter 6 who healed the wound of my people lightly saying peace peace when there is no peace these False prophets, these messianic pretenders, these thieves, these robbers, these strangers. They were trying to repair the mortal wounds of sin and death with the promise of peace. They were luring the sheep into a false sense of security 
only to lead them to their destruction. And Jesus reminds them in verse 9, I am the door. And and we love the words of Jesus because so often, this is a perfect example, when Jesus speaks in the New Testament, when he speaks in the gospel, when you see the red letters, so often he is quoting directly from the Old Testament or saying something that's meant to intentionally guide our thinking back to previous teaching. I am the door. Psalm chapter 118 This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and it will be found. Knock and the door will be open unto you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. Matthew chapter 25, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut over and over and over again. And we're reminded of truth, which is later proclaimed in this book, and we'll get to in a few years, in John chapter 14. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the way, the way. The door, the gate, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In the fold of Jesus, there is true salvation, true freedom, and abundant provision. Look at verse 9. If anyone enters by me, look at what he says, he will be saved, he will go in and out, and will find pasture. And notice the words that Jesus uses here. Jesus uses the word anyone here. And there are a few notes that we need to observe about this world. This word, anyone who enters. Jesus already knows by name. Remember, we talked about that last week. One of the characteristics of the good shepherd is that he knows his sheep by name. So if someone is entering, Jesus already knows that sheep by name. But it also reminds us that the flock of Jesus is diverse. There's a hint of foreshadowing here, friends, that the flock would not be made up solely of Jews and Jewish people, but the flock would be made up as Gentiles as well. Anyone who enters. Those who enter, enter unto fellowship with the Lord and His flock. But they also enter unto submission to his lordship and the shepherding of their lives. That's what we enter into. If anyone enters by who? Me. If anyone enters by me, not by the law, not by your own efforts. It's not if anyone struggles and climbs up over the wall and gets in. If anyone enters by me, not by their own Jewish heritage, not by their own adherence to a strict moral or religious code. If anyone enters, 
he or she must enter through the gate of Jesus. He is the only way. The only way. And those who enter by him find protection and find preservation for their life. And that is a truth that's all throughout the Old Testament, friends. One of the great testimonies of God in the Old Testament is that He preserves and He protects His flock. This is His behavior. It's what He does. And just as the Son does everything that He sees the Father doing, in the Old Testament, the Father preserves and protects His sheep. So too does Jesus preserve and protect His flock. And for those of us who have entered Through Jesus, there are three precious treasures to be found. And if you sit here today and you enjoy a relationship with Jesus, then friends, these treasures are yours. And they should bring us great joy. Great joy. Treasure one, it's right in verse nine. First, he will be saved. Salvation. What a gift. Eternal life. The opportunity to be with the Lord forever. To never die. An amazing gift. Treasure two. He will go in and out. There's freedom. There's great freedom with the Lord, friends. Paul talks about this freedom in the New Testament. He often talks about it to the church because unfortunately, as a body of Christ, one of the things that we like to do is put ourselves back in chains. And and Paul and Peter both affirm over and over again the freedom that we have in Christ. There is great freedom. They are free to go in and out. And what else? What do they find? They find pasture. There's abundant provision. It never runs dry, free to go in and out and to find pasture. And in contrast to the door, the one that's able to give us salvation and freedom and abundant provision, there is in verse 10, once again, the presence of who? Who's in verse 10? The thief. So here we have the door. And all of the wonderful treasures that the door provides. And what does it say that the thief does? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And perhaps Jesus had in mind here the person of Satan. One cannot be entirely sure. But regardless of who Jesus had in mind, the behavior of the thief is counter of and in opposition to Jesus' behavior. Jesus gives salvation. The thief is out to steal your joy and your thankfulness. Jesus gives life and freedom. The thief wants to kill you and rob you of your freedom. Jesus gives abundant provision. And the thief poisons and destroys the harvest. That's thief behavior. It's just what he does. And Jesus is now going to make a statement regarding his purpose. And it's one of the clearest statements of his purpose in all of the Gospels. And his statement helps us to answer the question, why did Jesus come? Why did he come into the world? But his statement also gives us insight into what kind of leader Jesus is. In contrast to the thief, look at what Jesus says at the end of verse 10. 
So here's the thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And what does Jesus say at the end of verse 10? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundantly. And John confirms this purpose in the words that he pens in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. One of the verses that we share together almost every week. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. And so there's a question, what does this abundant life look like? As believers, here we are, and perhaps there's many of you that sit here today and and you feel, hey, this is abundant life. This is it. But perhaps there's many of you that sit here today and feel like, whoa, I haven't known abundant life in a long time. What does that look like? And it's characterized, friends, by joy, by thankfulness, by love, by wonder or fear, and faith. And as the religious leaders used the law to rob the Israelites of their joy, so too will Satan use the things of this world to try to rob us of our joy and the things that bring us joy. And as the religious leaders modeled and lived by a code of entitlement, so too will Satan use the ways of this world to motivate within us a sense of entitlement, a sense of we deserve. So dangerous, friends. What does that sense do? It robs us of what? Our gratitude and our thankfulness. When we begin to think that there's things that we deserve in this life, we become less and less thankful and less and less gracious for what we are given. And as the religious leaders abused and lorded over the people, so too will Satan use the actions of others to cause doubt in our minds, stealing our security and clouding our desire to grow in a greater love because we've been hurt so much by other people. Abundant life isn't defined by our possessions, by our social status, by our friends on Facebook, how often we do the tweet, all right, our athletic ability, any of those things. My friend told me I'm not allowed to say the in front of social media things, but I can't stop. I said, the other night we were talking, I said the YouTube. He's like, stop saying the, just say YouTube. So, it, I guess it makes me sound old-fashioned, I don't know. Abundant life doesn't care about our economic status, our skin color, our cultural background, or our political affiliation. It depends nothing on those things. Abundant life is not discriminant. There are no favorites with God. He's perfectly fair and just according to His own standards of fairness and justice. He has provided a way to abundant life for all. And that gate is available for anyone who believes to enter through. It's available. It's Jesus. And we know that we are living in abundance. Here's how you know, friends. How do we know that we're living an abundant life? Here's how we know. Here's how we know we're living an abundant life. We are living in abundance when we are known as children of love, with a nature of love, motivated by love, and compelled by Christ to grow in a greater love for God and a greater love each other did you catch how many times the word love is in that statement how do we know that we are living an abundant life we know because we are defined as love we come to be defined as love daily loving living 
and leading in all that we're called to for God's glory. And so now the question as we sit here today is, are we joyfully experiencing this abundant life? Is this true? And and if not, why not? Friends, abundant life is found in Jesus. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Friends, this is a truth. Church, this is a truth for us. Abundant life is here and it's available for all who believe. And let us continually encourage one another to enjoy the fullness of abundant life that comes through Jesus. What does Jesus as the door teach us about what kind of leader or what kind of shepherd he is? He's a protector. He's a sustainer. He's one that provides salvation. He provides freedom. He gives provision. He's an abundant life giver. And while church, he is indeed the door that he claims to be, this is not all he claims in this passage. Look down at verse 11. Verses 11 to 13. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is the hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. And Jesus begins by laying out what might be the most defining characteristic of a good shepherd church. So clear for us right here in this passage. If Jesus had to tag one behavior on to what defines a good shepherd, he tags it on right after this line. The good shepherd in verse 11 does what? Lays down his life for the sheep. And isn't that the hallmark of Jesus' leadership, church? Isn't that the thing about Jesus that this world remembers and celebrates? More than anything, that he not only laid down his life, but that he took it back up again. He rose from the dead, laying aside all of the treasures that he had in heaven with the Father to come and be with his sheep. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Sacrifice. By taking the form of a servant. Sacrifice. Being born in the likeness of men, laying down his life. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Not just laying down his life, but laying down his life in a magnificent way. Magnificent way. What motivated such wondrous love? The glory of God. The salvation of mankind. And it's interesting. We're going to dig deeper into this phrase next week 
as we conclude our study here on the Good Shepherd. And we're going to see that Jesus has the authority not only to lay his life down because it's been granted for him to do so by the Father, but he also has the authority to take his life back up. No one takes Jesus' life from him. No one. He willfully sacrifices it. He willfully lays it down for the salvation of his sheep, modeling for us the behavior of the good shepherd. I want you to just listen. I normally put the words up, but I want you to just listen to this passage in Romans chapter 5. Just listen to these words, church. These words that we should remind ourselves of over and over and over again. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 11. Just listen. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, church, this is the life of the shepherd laid down as a sacrifice at the feet of the Father. The blood of the sacrifice atoning for the sins of the sheep. The flesh of the sacrifice serving to turn away the wrath of God from the flock. All of it serving humanity that through the work of Jesus, the sheep might be reconciled unto God. And just as above when Jesus contrasts the door of the sheep to the thief, here too he's going to make a contrast now in this portion of the text. He's going to contrast the actions of the good shepherd with those of the hired hand. Take a look at verse 12. Verse 12, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. The hired hand is not a shepherd. He does not have ownership of the sheep. This means that by nature he is not attached to the flock as the good shepherd is. And while the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, look at the behavior of the hired hand in verse 12. The good shepherd lays his life down. What does the hired hand do? He sees the wolf coming and does what? He leaves. He flees. The good shepherd would fight for the protection of his flock. Do any of you know someone in your life that flees? Anytime that there's a problem, he runs. He doesn't want to confront or she doesn't want to confront the hard things in life, but they're scared and they flee and they leave. And then oftentimes we see this in football. There's certain players from time to time when things are going difficult and things aren't going well on Friday night. Some players, they hang their head and they pack it in. They pack it in. But others keep their head up and they keep fighting. 
The good shepherd fights for the protection of the flock. The hired hand sees the wolf coming, and instead of standing his ground and being ready to fight for the health and the well-being of the flock, he runs. He runs away. Goes. And if interesting, we trace this phrase, hired hand. It's only used three other times in all the Bible. Only three other times. And, and interestingly enough, all of them are in the book of Job. And then interesting, look at Job chapter 7. It's on the screen. Has not a man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow, like a hired hand who looks for his wages. And then there's this one, and, and this is interesting. I, I had to text this to a friend this week when I read it, because I think I have read it before, but I forgot. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. That's all I texted to my friend. I didn't text him the rest. <laughs> he comes out like a flower. Now, I did not come out like a flower. I can tell you that much. <laughs> he withers and he flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you not open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed him his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. Church, the hireling is a slave. He's working in his mind. He's working too hard for too little. Defending the sheep from the wolf is above his pay grade. He's out. See you later, guys. He does not own one of them. And so when the wolves come, he leaves. Hmm. And here we want to jump back down to verse 13. But then we want to come back up and deal with the wolf. Take a look at verse 13. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hired hand ultimately flees because he feels indifferent towards the well-being of the flock. They do not belong to him. His livelihood isn't tied to their health, and so he's out. And this behavior is very different from the behavior of the good shepherd, who we learned last week is intimately acquainted with the sheep. You know, one of the questions I was asked through the interview process a little over a year ago here, was how, as a leader, I would handle adversity. Because in any leadership environment, adversity is always going to come, right? And, and there are many who flee. There are many who flee. I think it may have even been at the congregational meeting, somebody asked that question. And I, and I just shared, well, I've coached high school football at Salanco High School for 15 or 16 years and haven't fleed. So, and we've had some rough seasons. We've had some good seasons, but we've stuck in. And you know, I, I'll tell you, friends, leaders stick in. They stick in. They don't flee when trouble comes. They don't run. They stand fast. They stick in, and they bear through the adversity with the sheep because they recognize that the Lord is in the adversity. He does not take us through anything through which He intends to use to help us to grow. The good shepherds, they realize that. And they stand. But the outside hireling, he leaves. He flees. Now there's another character that comes up 
in this chapter, and we want to jump back and take a look at him, and that is the wolf. And I have to say, historically, wolves have gotten a pretty bad rap, haven't they? And we're pretty hard on the wolves. Three little pigs? That's tough. Little Red Riding Hood? Tough. Peter and the wolf? Tough. That's a sad one. Isn't there like a little duck that he eats? It's not good, right? The wolf's bad reputation is carried all the way out even into biblical literature. And there has always been a contrast in the Bible between the wolf and the sheep. It's not normal for the two species to coexist peacefully. Look at verse 12. The wolf snatches them and he scatters them. He snatches them and he scatters them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents, innocents, innocent as doves. Acts chapter 20. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. One of the greatest destructive characteristics, church, of a wolf is that the wolf takes something that's meant to be whole, and what does he do to it? He tears it apart. Wolves cause division. That's their function. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The wolf comes to divide and scatter the flock. Without getting too graphic, they, they take a piece of the lamb and they separate a piece of the lamb from the lamb. That's what they do. How does a wolf operate in the church? Remembering, friends, that this church this is not the building. This is the church. Those who are in this room. Hey, what do you think about this thing that they're doing now? Hey, do you agree with that decision that the elders made? I mean, come on, it's a little crazy. What's going on here? You know what that person did? Do you know how they behave outside of the building here? Did you hear? Well, I heard that I have a problem with this person. These are wolf words. These are wolf phrases, church. And they will divide us. They will separate us. They will tear us apart as a flock. Never going directly to the person, picking a person apart piece by piece away from the flock, poisoning the well against decisions against other people, stirring up dissension, creating division, scattering the flock. Fear, anxiety, doubt, all created by the ravenous appetites of the wolves who are bent on destruction. This is what wolves do. Rarely thankful, never satisfied, certainly never considering the best interest of those who they are devouring, they work their crafty deceptiveness. And church, Satan uses their work to discourage and disenfranchise the flock. I used to go to church, but then 
well, I went to that church for many, many years, but then somebody did this, and now we just don't go anymore. They're disenfranchised. The sheep, they've been destroyed by the wolves. Make no doubt about it. The wolves are tools in the hands of Satan whose greatest thrill would be to divide us, church. That would be Satan's greatest thrill. To divide us, to separate us, to see us destroy one another from the inside out. And it happens. These things spread like gangrene. And, and church, the Bible is crystal clear about how we are to treat wolves. Crystal clear. There is no room for misinterpretation. If there is a person in our midst who's out to cause division and destruction, to divide the flock, to try to separate believers, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, asks for a person who stirs up division, a wolf, after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Ironically, isn't it that Titus is a pastoral epistle? Titus is written to shepherds who are shepherding sheep. And Titus is saying, warn a divisive brother once, then warn him twice, and if you've got to go back a third time, have nothing more to do with him. Nothing more. The best way to deal with a wolf or with... Uh, with or without sheep's clothing, the pattern is right here. It's explicitly clear. No mistake. Church, if we believe that a brother or sister has sinned against us, if we truly feel like we've been offended, then the best thing to do for that brother or sister, the most healthy thing to do, what the Bible calls us to do, is go directly to that person. Physically. Physically. Not, not through twitting, tweeting, or Facebooking or whatever, but directly going to the person, sitting down face to face with them, talking it out. You know what the wolf does? The wolf snatches at our ears against that brother and sister. And the wolf takes great joy in seeing us going to all the other brothers and sisters and saying, do you know what that person did to me? Do you know what that person says? Do you know how he behaves? You know how he acts? Mm. By the way, for the wolf, when the flock is scattered, you think his, his meals are much easier to come by? Right? Much easier. Church, there is power in the unity of the flock under the protection of our good shepherd, Jesus. And I would say to you, as, as your pastor who stands up here, an imperfect man, as I've shared with you many a times, that that is the greatest place we could be as a congregation. Under the protection and provision of our shepherd. Being motivated by love. Being thankful. Friends, if we're just thankful, how countercultural is that in this world we live in today? Just being thankful. Just saying thank, thank you and being gracious for the things that we have. Oh, that keeps the attitude and the, the mentality of the congregation so healthy. Because we never expect. We're always thankful to receive. Such a powerful place to live from, but so countercultural to the world that we live in today. 
How might our lives look in light of these realities? Friends, we need to beware that we're not imitating the behaviors of the thieves and the robbers. No hired hands, no wolves. And we have to be careful that that we are not stirring up dissension, that we're not causing division, that we're not murmuring, that we're not gossiping, slandering, but that we're creating unity, we're being thankful, we're joyful. To delight in the salvation that we have and the freedom and the provision that comes from our Good Shepherd, those are places for us to be, church. Good places. And finally this, John chapter 15, verse 13, and as our team comes this morning to close us, I'll leave you with this verse. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And I would ask what that might look like in our life as we live each day. For your provision. And Lord, I pray that you would give each and every one of us courage to stand. As David modeled long ago the example of a shepherd to stand before the difficult things that face the people you bring into our pathways, that you would give us courage to stand boldly on your word and on your truth, Lord. That you would give us courage and boldness to love how you have called us to love, not in some wishy-washy way, Lord, but in a way that would produce behaviors that have others' best interests in mind. Lord, help us to count others better than ourselves. Help us to model the example of Jesus, the great shepherd, the greatest shepherd we could ever know. Give us the strength to lay down our lives for each other and to love one another even when maybe we don't feel like it. Let your spirit work in our hearts and our minds in a way that would produce growth in our lives. And we pray that you would receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Dave.